he need he is a he is a deity that thrives on batter up uh, wow uh, he is a diddy kong that thrives on tratter <laughs> Trevor and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Now, if you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of March 2022, and uh, we're in the midst of a uh, kind of a lazy month over here at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, we really haven't had a whole lot of inspiration to go around. Everybody's been busy with some real life shit, and you know, uh, the state of the world ain't all that positive right now. So we're basically taking it easy. Uh, this is kind of a spur-of-the-moment recording, and as you may have noticed, also a solo affair. Uh, so it's just going to be you and me uh, today. Uh, so for my pick, uh, for our film review for today, uh, I went with something short, uh, because as I said, uh, this is a lazy month. Uh, I'm just looking for something I can do right fucking quick. Uh, so I went with something short and familiar. Uh, so something I didn't really have to pay that close attention to upon rewatching it. Uh, so to do away with all the, sus the suspense, that is. Uh, the film I selected to review on my own today is uh, Ryuhei Kitamura's Aragami uh, from the year 2003. Uh, now, anyway, who's been listening to the show for any length of time uh, has most certainly heard me bring up this director's name before. Uh, Ryuhei Kitamura is, of course, a Japanese director who kind of rose to prominence uh, along with my my personal interest in in the film medium uh, so I've often like referred to him as like my guy uh, at a specific point in my life uh, specifically when I was about 13 14 years old um, that's that's kind of when he was rising to prominence in the Japanese film industry uh, his uh, his his title reign in that position didn't exactly last very long. Uh, however, he is a working director to this very day. Um, however, he's one that I have since somewhat lost track of. But uh, just to give an explanation, um, my my first encounter with Kitamura's uh, filmography came in the form of a film called Verses, uh, which was one of our earliest reviews here on Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, that came in the year 2000 on the nose, uh, and it was probably the first movie like the first bootleg movie i ever bought uh and i sought that out uh, i remember i distinctly recall uh seeking out a bootleg uh distributor and uh having to ask my father to to get like to get me a money order so i had to go to the bank with him and like give him my own money so he could purchase the money order on my behalf and we could mail it to some stranger from whatever part of the world to mail me a, a questionable dvd of questionable quality but um, I stumbled across a review uh, for the movie, and I think it was the website uh, Kung Fu Cult Cinema, which I believe is uh, defunct. Uh, however, I have not gone there uh, in a very, very long time, so maybe it's still around, maybe it's not. Um, but yeah, Kung Fu Cult Cinema was uh, 
a website I frequented uh, when I was in middle school, uh, that and badmovies.org. Um, Versus did not have an article on that website, but it did on uh, Kung Fu Cult Cinema. Uh, and they kind of spotlit the film for me and gave it like a, a, a very emph- emphatic, like two thumbs up. And uh, it was also through that website that I learned about uh, other uh, Tokyo Shock or quote, like extreme films of uh, Japanese cinema from the early 2000s, like uh, Battle Royale and like Suicide Club and things like that. Um, I since i also went on to purchase battle royale also in bootleg form but uh, suicide club is one that i haven't seen as of yet but maybe someday um but anyway uh, i sought out uh, verses and my god it blew my mind it was like it felt like the movie that i would have made in the woods with my friends when i was 13 years old and uh, honestly I've, I've basically done that like short version short even lower budget versions of that with my friends but um his oeuvre, as it were, um, could basically be characterized as like uh, Sam Raimi meets the Wachowskis, uh, at least in his his earliest iteration, in uh, Kitamura's earliest films. Um, the way he, he moves the camera, his editing process is very Raimi-esque, um, but he has an obsession with action and martial arts and swordplay and things like that that very much was kind of riffing on the the flavor of, of wire foo that was really big at the time that was kind of ushered in by uh, the Wachowski's Matrix uh, film. And I think it's worth noting that I think that came out in 1999 and then Versus came out the very next year. So it he often wears his influences on his sleeve. And uh, honestly, that's that's not always the worst thing to do. Uh, sometimes it's, it's kind of nice, actually. Sometimes that can be kind of cozy. Um, Anyway, uh, Versus was my starting point with Kitomura, uh, and then I eventually would go on to pretty much either own or, or watch virtually all of his early filmography. I think uh, Love Death was like one of the only ones I didn't watch. I even have like one of his short films on my on my shelf again in bootleg form. It's a it's a film called Longinus. But anyway, uh, he kind of went on a he went on a run. Like, like his, his earliest offerings in terms of, like, feature films, like, he, he went on a pretty solid run, uh, and he kind of rose to prominence in, like, blockbuster Japanese filmmaking, because he would go from Versus to doing Alive, which I don't think is one of his better films, but it, it has a look, it has a vibe, um, actually bears a very strong resemblance to the film we'll be talking about today, Aragami, um, but I, I believe that's a a manga adaptation but aragami is a the film we'll be talking about today that came out in 2003 uh, as did azumi which i think is one of his very best films uh certainly like one of his most mainstream and uh probably ambitious in terms of scale um sky high uh, came i think even the same year so 2003 was a very very busy year for him i do have that one although i think that was based on a television series um which resulted in me kind of looking at it cockeyed all like through parts of it where I was like I feel like I'm potentially missing something here it's also worth noting that uh Yumiko Shaku uh was kind of having a moment in around the early 2000s and she headlined that one as well so that was kind of him working with a a pretty big name star and then uh the big one though was for especially for me uh was Godzilla Final Wars which came out in 2004 um and did not do well uh, financially uh, as far as I understand, it was the highest budgeted Godzilla film up to that point, excluding uh, the American version from 1998. Um, 
and it did not make very much money for Toho. And I don't think it lost money, but it was not a rousing success. Um, and I know he put a lot of himself into that. And as far as I can tell, that kind of marked like a pivotal moment in his career where, I mean, I, I said his influences were, they seemed to be like Sam Raimi and, uh, and the Wachowskis, like more specifically the Matrix. I don't know about the Wachowskis' entire filmography, but very specifically the Matrix. Um, and in addition to that, a lot of the influences he wears on his sleeve uh, tend to be uh, American cinema. I didn't name a single Japanese director there that I saw any influences from uh, in his earlier films. Um, so I think it was maybe an ambition of his uh, from the very start uh, to transition into American and or English language filmmaking. Uh, because as far as I understand, after Godzilla Final Wars, uh, pretty much all of his films have been kind of in the horror ac horror and or action genres and have largely been English language productions. Um, and this also marks the point where I kind of stopped checking in on him as much. Like the moment passed for me, I guess, uh, because as much fun as it is, as much stupid goddamn fun as it is, uh, Godzilla Final Wars was, I wouldn't call it a disappointment for me personally, because in 2004, that was that was good enough for me. Like, I'm a Godzilla super fan. Like, and, and ask anybody, it, he's he's in my he's in my veins. Like, God, I Godzilla is my essence. So, like, anything Godzilla has something going for it, except for that American remake. Um, although, I I mean the the 98 one, we we did like a three and a half hour talk on it. We did find some things worth worth praising in there. So I take that back. Anyway. Uh, Kitamura these days, like I said, he's he's mostly doing low-budget action and or horror films that I unfortunately haven't really been watching, but um, he's come up in conversation so many times like in the past couple of months that I was feeling guilty, and I was like, you know what, maybe I, maybe I should like re-examine this guy, because he really was very special to me and very important to me. Like I said, almost all the movies I named directly I, I have on my shelf, and I've seen more than once. Um, but I, I feel like I kind of abandoned him at some point. So maybe maybe he's still doing good work out there. It's just I haven't been watching it. But um, anyway, let's get to this movie in question, uh, Aragami. Uh, like I said, a big part of why I've selected it for today uh, is because its runtime is 78 minutes. Um, now, somehow, uh, 78 minutes actually feels 20 minutes too long uh, in this film's case, which, again, unfortunately, uh, is a little bit of like a... A theme in Kitamura's filmography. I want to say, virtually every film he makes is a little overlong. It's it's kind of baffling, actually. Even verses, even like his his first feature that is not very dialogue heavy, not very character heavy. It's mostly just action and 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 imagery and spectacle. Somehow it's also overlong. Oh yeah, and it's also a very low budget film. I want to say it's maybe a weakness on his part, but yeah, I picked this one because it was 78 minutes long. Uh, I'm in a position where I may be on call, so I may actually have to skedaddle like partway through this review, so hopefully, fingers crossed, that doesn't come about, but um, I wanted to go with something familiar and something short, and I found it right there. So um, this film has a very fascinating origin, which may result in a follow-up episode because uh, part of the gimmick behind this film, and it's a really cool one, actually, uh, is that this film was part of uh, something called the the Duel Project, um, and I'm a sucker for uh, for uh, like 
film like thematic film projects like be it like a 48 hour film festival or anything like that basically anything has very specific parameters Uh, i think that's a very useful tool for creation uh for for creativity i think you can get some really amazing results if you if you put restrictions on yourself um you find that a lot in like game design i've noticed but that's a story for another day but anyway this uh dual project um, was apparently uh, dreamt up between uh, our director, Ryuhei Kitamura, and uh, a colleague of his by the name of Yukihiko uh, Tsutsumi, uh, who apparently got shit-faced, uh, and they were challenging each other uh, to to create a film with very basic parameters being um, has to take place in one location, uh, has to feature a duel, and you got to make it in a week, or at least I presume that means shoot it in a week. I don't actually know if if the the one week also refers to editing. Uh, I, I'm heartily surprised uh, if that's the case with Aragami. Um, but a part of why this uh, dual project is actually a big part of why I selected this today was because uh, I was perusing the uh, Blu-ray.com uh, release date calendar, a lovely website uh, if you're a movie enthusiast or, or a physical media collector, definitely check it out. Um, and I noticed that uh, the other half of the dual project, again, directed by uh, Yukihiko Tsutsumi, uh, 2LDK as the title of his film, um, is getting a Blu-ray release uh, next month. And I have never seen that. Uh, I've only seen Aragami. Uh, so seeing that made me think of this one. So uh, thanks for that, uh, Blu-ray distributor, whoever you are. Um, anyway, uh, what we have here is a 78-minute film uh, that f- that fits within those parameters of the dual project. Uh, it's a single-location film uh, that features numerous duels, uh, and apparently, I have to assume, was shot and or completed within a week. And uh, it's it's actually pretty impressive when you think about that specifically, how how quickly they had to throw it together. But anyway. Uh, Shit, I'm talking to myself here, so I guess I have to uh, do the plot summary thing. So what we have here is a uh, um, a pair of wounded samurai uh, arrive at a temple in the middle of the night. Um, one of them passes away, the other survives, um, whereupon he uh, is introduced uh, to an immortal being who challenges him to a death match. Uh, Merry mishaps ensue. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's our plot, plot summary. Like I said, this comes out in uh, the year 2003, directed by Ryuhei Kitamura. Uh, and let's get right into it. So our film uh, begins with some uh, digital titles that uh, very much feel of their time. And uh, as as you would expect from from a product from this director, one like one of our very earliest shots uh, involves a creative camera movement. That's a, That's kind of like one of the... The hallmarks of Kitamura's like oeuvre is uh, he he really seems to get off on putting the camera in interesting places and or moving the camera in uh, borderline obnoxious ways. Um, movement is something that uh, both he and I, I guess, share in common. Uh, I'm a big fan of just movement in film in general, be it human bodies, like bodies in motion or camera choreography, anything like that. Um and he's, he's a really big fan of strapping the camera to things and running around with it. Uh, he's never met a dolly track he didn't absolutely fucking love. 
um, we begin with like a, a shot within this temple. Uh, it's a it's kind of like a it looks almost like a crane shot, but it's it's rotating over. It's it's kind of rotating on its axes as it pushes in on a woman in a kimono that's in like a purple and white uh, spider web pattern. Um, and by the way, uh, one we only have one location, so I may as well take a minute to describe it. Um, we're in a, a temple. Um, it has like colored colored like fabric uh, adorning the, the the rim of the ceiling and the walls. Um, there's a bunch of characters like painted onto the walls, like like all over the walls that look like pseudo kanji. Uh, they it looks like almost like a combination of like Sanskrit and kanji. It's an approximation of something. Like it doesn't appear to be any actual language, but it fucking looks cool. Um, and also not only that, it made me think of uh, another uh, Japanese filmmaker who I have a lot of love for and who I also uh, kind of walked away from uh, at a at a certain point in time, uh, who continues to work to this day. That would be uh, Keita Amemiya. Um, huge fan of his work, especially his early offerings and his uh, his Garo uh, series. The early series of that I was absolutely in love with, um, but it turned into a, a like a mega franchise, and it got to that point that we're kind of at with the uh, with the Marvel with the MCU kind of stuff, where it's like, okay, I I love I loved this thing at a certain point, but now you're making too much of it like year in and year out and now it feels like you're asking me you're asking too much of me the consumer to the point that it feels like a chore like a chore and i can't enjoy it um and that's kind of what happened with his uh garo uh, his garo tokusatsu series i i really 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 liked it for a long time and just eventually had to walk away from it anyway uh the point i'm trying to make here is a uh, part of what made me love uh, part of what made me fall in love with uh, Keita Amemiya is his uh, production design. Um, good God, uh, his costuming and uh, his uh, sci-fi slash fantasy by way of hot glue gun aesthetic uh, for like his sets and prop designs is so charming and and intricately detailed. Like I, I have a couple of his art books and they're they're absolutely wonderful to flip through and. Uh, these uh these runes these kind of like sanskrit slash kanji-esque uh, characters that we have adorning the walls here very much made me think of a lot of his works more specifically on like uh, the zeram uh franchise um such that it's like hmm, did, did somebody like pull some paneling from the sets of those those movies from back in the 90s because yeah, I, would, I wouldn't put it past them because remember this is a movie that was done on the quick um, anyway, the first real event that happens in the movie is that we have this woman uh, in a kimono, like I said, a purple and white kimono. Um, the actress's name, by the way, and we have very few actors here, so I may as well just mention everybody, uh, is uh, Kanae Uotani. Um, I thought I thought I recognized her from more um, than than is than is apparent. Um, she has worked with Kitamura many many times actually uh, she's in Long Gina, she's I think in Azumi she's definitely in Sky High and uh, Final Wars so, so apparently she's a like one of his go-to people um, she answers the door of this temple which uh, there's a couple of strangers knocking um, and they come in through the rain and uh, it appears that this story takes place in like the uh, uh, Sengoku period or something uh, where maybe maybe this is probably 
a couple of samurai coming in from the rain, like post battle or something. And one of them uh, is played by another Kitamura regular. Um, that would be uh, Hideo Sakaki, uh, who played the villain uh, in Versus. Uh, and a, I think he had a small role in Azumi, but he's he's worked with Kitamura many, many times, and he has nothing to do in this movie. <laughs> um, so these two injured samurai walk in. One of them has arrows pointing out of his back, um, and then they walk in and just collapse on the floor, at which point we do a fade to black, and uh, our actual protagonist for the story uh, finds himself awaking, uh, clothed, cleaned, uh, and laying face up, uh, in the middle of the temple and uh, this character is played none most of these characters don't have names so forgive me um our protagonist our hero protagonist uh, is played by takao osawa um again he i thought of him as a familiar face but i perused his filmography and it seems that um he's a prolific television actor uh or at least he was uh but he was um kind of nascent in his uh development as like a, a film talent around the time this film was made so it's hard to like point to him as like a, a huge selling point for the thing but uh, he's he is a working actor like he has credits as as recent as 2021 so he's he's kept busy over the years um anyway he awakens uh and he finds himself sitting opposite uh the i guess the titular aragami uh the to be revealed later spoiler alert uh, so the person who he will be dueling with throughout this 78-minute film, uh, played by Masaya Kato, uh, who is a <laughs> he is a curious element in Japanese cinema because um, he has a way of popping up in seemingly all the things I like, um, regardless of their quality. <laughs> um, he he has a very interesting energy and demeanor to him. Like he has an interesting delivery. Uh, I in my in my head I I think of it as like slightly aloof and disingenuous (laughs) like i don't know what it is about him i don't know that he's a very good actor but he gets off on just handsomeness and cool like he is a he is a damn sexy man like like no fucking joke like i i remember looking up how old he was like around the time this movie came out uh, because he was pretty busy uh around the early 2000s he's also in a korean film he plays a villain in a korean film called uh fighter in the wind um and i think he was like in his early 40s but he he does not look it and i don't think he ever will because goddamn sexy man but um something about his delivery just always feels a little bit off like he's just he just doesn't try as hard as he needs to because because he's just damn cool and he kind of knows it um also it's worth noting uh, a maybe a future review but probably a solo one because i i cannot conceive of a way i could get kyle to watch it um muscle heat um, I mean, just the title alone is a reason to put it on, but uh, he plays the villain in that, and uh, he has some uh, English lines of dialogue in that film that have since become uh, memes uh, among like my personal uh, friend circle. So that that's a story for another day. Um, but anyway, uh, our hero awakens and is int- he is he is greeted with with warmth and kindness. Um, and very quickly, uh, the two of them sit down to share a meal, and it, it looks absolutely delightful. Um, it's interesting uh, the way a lot of the dialogue scenes are put together in this film, uh, because, like I said, Kitamura's passion seems to be in um, staging action, for one, but two, uh, throwing the camera in goofy places. Um, 
So we do have a situation here where we have two, at most three people in the room uh, throughout the entirety of our film. And we have to find a way to make all of these frequent breaks in the action because this movie is largely dialogue, honestly. There's, there's about three instances of action and then the rest of it is just conversation and, and I don't know, character background and whatnot. Um, so he continually finds ways to keep keep the viewer engaged by putting the camera in interesting places and changing up the lighting, uh, like changing up the lighting setups to change the, the vibe uh, in the converse to match that of the conversation uh, as it progresses. And initially things are extremely cordial. Like things are very, very chill between these two. Um, and as I said, they share, they share a meal together. Um, and it's understood that um, unfortunately um, our main, our main character's friend who had been shouldering him, like carrying him uh, when the film began uh, did pass away. And uh, he is told uh, by Masaya Kato that uh, he cleaned his he cleaned his wounds and he dressed him and he is in another room which i couldn't help snicker to myself as i was watching the film having seen it previous so it was like another room that we will never see <laughs> because we have exactly the one set and uh we we can't afford that nor do we have time for that um anyway our hero uh is initially kind of anxious to get going like i mean it's very very kind to share a meal with with a stranger who took you in in the middle of the night and seemingly nursed you back to health uh after being gravely wounded but uh he it's a very strange temple by the like the lighting setups of this film are very eerie um the entire movie actually has a very stagey feel to it that i personally i think i appreciate it now more than I did when I initially watched it. Uh, it has a very theatrical, very stage play kind of vibe to it, not only in the way some of the dialogue is structured, but um, just in the way the action is blocked. Like uh, when we get to like the sword swinging and stuff, like I'll, I'll go into more detail about it, but um, there's there's a, a sense of, of fakeness, like like a phoniness uh, to, to the prop design and to the lighting and to the dressing of the sets that uh, I think is, is part like partly due to budget and time and whatnot but also i think very likely very intentional um anyway uh the rapport grows between uh the two characters between masaya kato and uh, takao osawa um as the kato introduces uh he introduces some booze uh, to the equation <laughs> and this kind of becomes like a i don't know not a running gag but a a, a motif uh, in in the dialogue scenes here where um, we have breaks in the action um, so we can sample different types of alcohol and uh, first up is wine uh, from France as he as he tells uh, his guest um, and it's it's really interesting they do some of that acting shit here where Takao Osawa his first thing he does when he picks up his wine glass in probably like 1500s Japan wine glass um, and he like flicks it with his finger and you hear you hear the the ring of the glass and what so ju just the idea of drinking from a wine glass is is strange to him and and otherworldly but um he tries it and of course he really likes it and uh there's there's a really cute like kind of like a visual gag here where uh the two of them are getting to know each other a little bit and uh masaya kato um well no uh osawa notes that uh behind uh, kato is a is a 
really gigantic like Buddha statue, or at least that's what he refers to it as. Um, really awesome prop, by the way, that somebody had to build or scrounge from somewhere on the quick. Uh, and uh, he, uh, Kato tells him like, actually, it's not a Buddha. It's a, it's like a, uh, it's a representation of me. Like I was trying to carve my likeness into its face. And I guess this is kind of teasing at the idea of what's to come here, where there's going to be a pivot in the story here, where it's like, oh, he's he's not just an ordinary hermit. Uh, up in a mountain temple that's just you know just down the road from a battlefield um he's had enough time to hand carve a giant buddha statue bearing his visage uh so it's like hmm i mean i know you have time on your hands but i i didn't like i don't know how many lifetimes you need in order to do that um of course there has to be a turn at some point so it of course comes uh around here uh, which is roughly like 15 minutes into the movie um i'm not sure how i feel about the pacing of the early chapters of this one because um i don't know if 15 minutes was too early or if we could have sped it up even more um i know there's most certainly some stuff in the middle that really could have been trimmed as i said this is only 78 minutes long it probably could have been 58 um anyway uh masaya kato um gets his own little camera angle here where the camera's positioned low and he has kind of like a a half face light where he looks slightly intimidating and he's leaning forward as he's talking um and he just kind of goes off on a tangent uh talking about legends of the mountain and how uh he basically asks his guest like have you heard of a, a tengu before which is a like kind of like a a goblin or like it's hard to describe. Anyway, it has a big long nose, sometimes has a wing, sometimes can manipulate the winds, uh, and it lives in mountains and stuff. Anyway, he asks him, like, have you ever heard of a Tengu? And he's like, uh, when I was a kid or something. Um, and he, uh, Masaya Kato, goes on and on about this Tengu that uh, the, the locals say live up on this very mountain. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's very like were werewolf movie-esque. Where it's just like, and sometimes if you if you listen in the middle of the night, you can hear his cries. And it's like, um, long story short, he's basically saying all those legends are about me. And there's this really awesome beat where we uh, we kind of transition into like a, it's a low angle shot. And both of our characters are sitting uh, sitting on the floor. By the way, Japanese from a period setting. It's it's a thing you do. Um, anyway, they're both sitting on the floor, so the camera is kind of low, so we can get both figures in the shot with their their eye lines like center frame. Um, and there's kind of this intimidating like uh, horror movie lighting cast onto both of their faces, where it's it's kind of like the uh, you know the flashlight under the chin effect on both actors. But uh, Masaya Kato uh, leans in and he says. Um, I am the Tengu, basically, except for he uses different terminology. He, he says it's not actually a Tengu. He says, uh, I am uh, an Aragami, uh, an Aragami, that is. Uh, so, like, Aragami, as far as I know, is like, like a, a god of battle or a god of war, basically. So he's some sort of deity that thrives on battle is what he's, is what he's imparting to his guest here. And by the way, like, it's been nothing but casual, just like kind of, I mean, there was like a, a solemn beat there where they were like acknowledging that a, the other person who arrived today or tonight uh, passed away. But for the most part, we've just been boozing it up and having a good time. But all of a sudden the tone shifts here where he's like, hey, 
you want to hear a scary story? <laughs> um, um, but we get this really awesome camera shot where uh, the camera is low to the ground, as I said, and he, uh, Masaya Kato leans in, and then we pull back uh, to see both actors in the frame, um, and he we just have this this unbelievably long beat where both actors just stare at each other with this this spooky horror movie lighting after he just told his house guest like hey i'm a fucking i'm a fucking demon <laughs> um, and they just kind of stare at each other for like 15 20 seconds until uh osawa like cannot he can't contain himself any longer um and he he uh, a smirk grows across his face and eventually he just starts laughing like hysterically and then Masaya Kato, like, he lets it hang for a minute, but, like, five seconds later, he starts laughing as well and slapping his knee and stuff. And, like, knee slapper, that is. How fucking hilarious. Um, but very quickly, uh, he resumes the story, and he's like, oh, yeah, but Tengus are totally real, by the way. Like, I'm, I'm joking, but you, but maybe I'm not. Um, but anyway, this camera shot was really, really cool because it, visually tells the story it's like it's visually representative of the the, the tension building and the the pivot point uh, in the story here and then uh one of a uh, kitamura's trademarks that uh, i don't know if it's his trademark but something he does an awful lot is a uh, rotating uh camera shots he, he loves him a dolly track and he loves him a rotating camera in fact i, I was telling brad from the cinema speak podcast uh azumi uh takes it to the next level where all of his movies up until then, like all three of his features or whatever up to that point, had featured like rotating camera shots where the camera just spins around two actors, usually in the midst of battle. Um, but in Azumi, they kind of ratcheted it up to 11 and they built like a super duper special camera rig where not only is the camera rotating around uh, the two actors uh, engaged in battle, um, it's rotating on like a vertical axis so it's like it's going above and under the the players as they're doing the choreography uh it's in that film it comes across as largely gimmicky like it it is totally like gimmicky horseshit it doesn't enhance the spectacle by any means but i can i can honestly say i've never seen that before and you know when it comes to action and and horror for that matter Oftentimes the devil is in the details and uh, being shown something you've never been shown before uh, is at the very least memorable. So I do need to give him credit for for being daring in that way. But um, yes, uh, if you watch any of his films, just keep keep an eagle eye out for uh, there will be multiple instances of, of the camera spinning around people. And we certainly get one here, although because I think this was shot on the cheap and, as I said, very much on the quick. Uh, as far as I can tell, um, they I don't know that they had an actual dolly track. Uh, because if you look at the construction of like, the floor of the set, um, they had a lot of control over the lighting. But in terms of like camera positioning and whatnot, I want to say they probably had some limitations. And we get this shot here where it's it's very deftly choreographed for what it is. Like It's not perfect, and I'm, I'm getting to that here. But as the two actors are laughing, the camera pulls back. And then and then starts to rotate around the two of them, um, and and the movement of the camera very much matches the the vibe of the conversation. But um, what I was getting at about the dolly track here is that during this camera rotation, the there's a slight jerkiness uh, to to the framing and to the camera movement during this this long take here that suggests that 
this was probably done like handheld or manually, but like they tried their best uh, to simulate like a, a track or like a, a mechanical armature of some sort. But it gets the point across. Um, it, it I think it's a lovely shot and it's very well lit, um, especially because as we rotate around to the other side of the actors and their postures have have gone from being on guard to you know after having shared a laugh and sitting sitting more upright and more calm uh because of the way the lighting is staged when we get around to the other side of them they're no longer shadowed in the ways that they were before it's actually like a the the lighting setup actually takes on a more friendly feel to it um it's it's a subtle little thing um it's one of those things that when when i first saw this movie like when i was 14 or 15 or some shit um I probably wouldn't have appreciated it. I most certainly didn't appreciate it. But now I, I look for, as Kyle often says on the show, we notice different things. Um, and I this was one of those things that I was really keen on noticing this time around. Was was I, I came into this movie armed with information that I didn't have when I was a teenager. And that would be uh, this director's tendencies and, and his influences. Um, and it made for a much more fun experience, honestly, because the, I, I have never thought of this as one of his better films. Um, it's more of a curiosity than anything else. But as I said, I'm a sucker for for projects like this where they 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 dared to be bold and gave themselves limitations and restrictions that, you know, resulted in something not half bad when you really think about it. But anyway, the conversation very quickly transitions back into a more aggressive tone where Masaya Kato uh, starts uh kind of probing into Osawa's past which he doesn't really know although he does make it known that uh uh he has some extraordinary abilities um and he very casually throws it out he basically is condemning Osawa he's he's saying like so you're you're a samurai you're a professional killer of of some prestige like like you wouldn't have been on that battlefield dressed the way you are if you if you hadn't been at it for a while and probably have a couple of couple of heads you've lopped off at some point um but uh osawa's reaction to to this interrogation is a uh, again represented by the cinematography we we push in uncomfortably close on both figures but in particular we're like really aggressively probing into Osawa's facial expressions and even the way he has his arms crossed suggests uh you know that may be his profession uh but it's not something he's particularly keen about getting into with a stranger and exploring in depth um but it's at this point that uh, Masaya Kato makes it known he has killed 794 people um and he remembers the sound of each and every one of their voices uh, the weapons they wielded and their, the expressions on their faces as they died, and uh, he has he has a really cool line here where he he uh, he he kind of sniffs the air like an animal, and he he tells Osawa, "You you reek of blood. I can smell it all over you." And Osawa kind of tries to wave it off as like, "Bruh, you're drunk. I'm I'm getting out of here. I'm hit, I'm heading out." Um, but as was mentioned earlier in dialogue, I I forgot to mention it. Uh, Masaya Kato had told him that, like, hey, a good reason for you to stay the night uh, with me is, uh, well, one, I did you a favor by nursing you back to health, but also uh, we're in the mountains. Uh, there's a battle not going on not far from here. Uh, it's raining cats and dogs. 
and uh yeah you could get picked up by an enemy patrol or slip and break your neck uh so it's he's basically letting him know he's isolated um and here's where the shoe fully drops where masaya kato again emphasizes i am an aragami i am a deity that thrives on battle i'm essentially immortal i killed almost i killed damn near 800 people and hey guess what i picked you uh to be the next person who should take a stab at killing me because you know what i've been doing this shit too damn long that the rent is too damn high i got two days to retirement uh and i am ready to i am just ready to pack it in and go home uh so basically uh this is this is our plot kind of crystallized here where we have a samurai who's been taken in by a stranger who turns out to be some sort of like some sort of immortal being basically a highlander um who is begging for death um but has too much pride uh to commit suicide um he is a deity that thrives on battle um and therefore he must be killed in battle um and so now he's basically requesting that his house guest osawa uh take take a swing basically he's saying hey uh you smell like blood i i know this shit inside and out like i know a killer when i i, I know the squealers and points finger uh, he he's basically picked him as a candidate uh, for somebody who could potentially best him in combat, in actual combat, not like just giving it away. Um, and of course, we have the the why me moment where Osawa is kind of like questioning and doesn't want anything to do with this. He's like, you know, I'm not terribly big on the idea of just kind of killing strangers, especially people who have done me favors and want even weirdos like you, sir, uh, handsome weirdos, mind you, but still weirdos. Um, so he's trying to find out a way out of the situation, um, at which point Masaya Kato informs him that uh, he basically gives him an anecdote. He says, like, hey, so uh, funny story. Uh, a long time ago, there was, uh, there was this lord, this dude that was like, he's, he basically tells him the story of, uh, what is it, Darth, Darth Plagueis the Wise or whatever. <laughs> he's basically, yeah, there's this, this Sith Lord. He was really... Uh, you know, he, he had this ability to, like, bring people back from the dead. No, basically, he says there was a lord who had this kooky idea that, like, if you, if you like, if you, like, eat babies and stuff, like, you, you can make you immortal. And he's like, yeah, that story's bullshit. But the whole thing about, like, eating human flesh in order to become immortal, oh, that is totally 100% accurate. <laughs> so, basically, uh, Masaya Kato lets Osawa know that, uh, hey, that lovely meal that we shared together, um, that that was made of your friend's liver, uh, that was cooked by that lovely lady over there in the purple kimono, um, who, by the way, Masaya Kato refers to as being much, much worse than him. Uh, we never really explore what her her deal is, but he he has reverence and respect for her. Uh, she doesn't do shit in this other than pour drinks and serve people their friends' livers. But um, anyway. Uh, he basically uh, causes Osawa to retch uh, at the re realization that he just ate his friend's liver a little while ago. Um, but apparently, um, and this is where I start to point out that, like, I want to say Ryuhei Kitamura is very big on letting you know that he's seen the same movies that you have, and he's he's real excited to sh compare notes. Uh, because what I got here was basically this is... Uh, I don't know, Big Trouble in Little China. It's like, see things no one else can see, do things no one else can do. It's like, hey, you know, 
feeling kind of invincible. <laughs> it's basically that's what he tells him. It's like um, he's given him a slice of immortality, and uh, it's implied that it enhances like his his physical prowess to some degree. This consuming of the liver prepared in a very specific fashion. Um, and on top of that, I did I did mention on the sly uh, Highlander, um, and that is something that I want to say was probably kind of a big deal uh, in the Kitamura uh, household uh, because he has a he has a thing like I can I can think of at least two or three movies in his filmography that that make extensive use of really gaudily constructed swords so not just like katanas not just swords like whenever he has swords in his movies they have to be like big bulky overly ornamented bullshit swords like katanas they're made to look like claymores essentially um, he had it in Versus, he had it in Sky High, he most certainly has it in this, and not only that, um, we have a situation where we have two two dudes wielding big gaudy swords, oh yeah, and there's probably a thunderstorm going on outside, and oh yeah, Versus had that shot where Takasakaguchi comes back from the grave and like throws his hand up into the heavens and, and I guess like manifests a giant gaudy sword via a thunderbolt or something. Point is, he has seen Highlander, and actually, in a lot of ways, like it just occurred to me right now, um, stylistically, he probably has some stuff in common with Russell Mulcahy. Like, I I think of them as having maybe similar skill sets. I guess not similar sensibilities, but similar skill sets. In that, Russell Mulcahy, I don't think is a very adept storyteller, um, but the editing of some of his films, and more importantly, some of the shots and the lighting in his films, is often striking like like i i don't know that he knows his way around a good script like he's he's not a very good storyteller but he knows how to make some sexy shots um and same goes for kitamura like i want to say kitamura isn't as big on getting that one shot uh, but he really loves him like a protracted action scene with all sorts of out of control mtv style editing anyway that's that's a comparison i'd like to explore uh, down the road but yes there is most certainly a little bit of highlander shit going on in this movie you better believe it um anyway uh osawa ends up taking up arms against masaya kato because i mean for fuck's sake he was just told uh he was served his friend's liver and by the way he does make it known that the guy who dragged him in uh from the battlefield uh the two of them were badly injured uh, that guy was his friend like uh, hideo sakaki uh was his friend not just some guy um, so he just ate his friend's liver. He's real pissed about it. So he he picks up his katana and he starts swinging at uh, Masaya Kato, who very deftly avoids him without even really drawing his own sword, which he has on his belt, on his obi. Um, and this is where we get kind of our first, uh, I guess, taste, our first sample of, of the style of choreography for this film. So one thing that's really important to note is that remember this was apparently shot in one week that is not very much time uh, so when it comes to chore choreography uh, we need to do things efficiently like we need to do things that are of course impressive in some way like we need to go for some visual flair or whatnot but we also have to do things that can be replicated um, replicated readily uh, meaning we can do as many takes as we need to in order to get it in order to get to look right uh, without potentially harming or completely exhausting our actors. Um, and as a result, like like I said, it actually translates to a very stagey kind of vibe. So the choreography, at least in this opening stanza, is not 
super intricate. In fact, it's like kind of like silly how how wide some of these swings are and how 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 like broad all the action is, but it comes across almost like a like a kabuki play or something. Like if you're if you're familiar with that kind of looks like there there are regularly there are routinely sword fights and kabuki plays and whatnot. Um, but it's not really about like intricate choreography or anything. It's more just about motion, fluidity, and and just a, a certain dynamism to the movement. And it it's never meant to look dangerous. And that's kind of what this this opening beat in particular has. Um, and it's further emphasized by uh, Masaya Kato's uh, wardrobe, which I haven't talked about. Um, <laughs> uh, the first note that I, I wrote down was that when we, we get to see the back of his kimono, um, apparently it's constructed from the same material as a Shredder's c- uh, cloak in uh, the first TMNT movie from 1990. Uh, he has a very gaudy outfit in this film, and his hair is, again, very much like a kabuki performer. It's, it's kind of like reddish. Uh, it has like red streaks kind of going through it, um, and also he has like a, like shiny reflective threads running through his kimono. It's it's a very gaudy outfit, um, which is very fitting for the character, who is actually downright hilarious at times. I really haven't been emphasizing uh, the character beats too much because, as I said, unfortunately, this is this is me trying to run through this. But um, there are some like downright hilarious uh, beats here. Uh, mostly involving Masaya Kato. In terms of characterization, uh, Takao Osawa, um, it's interesting because uh, his he has an interesting look. Like he has he has these big bug eyes. He's not like leading man handsome, but he has a good energy to him. And it's kind of funny because like when you think of like a protagonist in a story like this, lit the way it is and stuff, like you, you think he's going to be like a stoic or something, but no, he's he's kind of petulant. Like he's quick to laugh. He's a little bit bratty. Um, and it, he has an interesting energy to him that actually kind of works. But Masaya Kato, like I said, he always just seems like he's just kind of playing himself a little bit. And in this case, goddamn, it actually really works. <laughs> like, case in point, uh, at the conclusion of this first uh, explosion of violence, uh, again, instigated by Osawa, uh, Masaya Kato finally draws his, his katana, or, or it's not a katana it's, it's some it's some gaudy horse shit um and like mid battle he actually just casually says like oh my he he grabs osawa's katana as he's trying to stab him in the throat with it like he just pinches it between his index and his his index finger and his thumb and he just examines it and he's like oh shit your sword is in a rough state he's like it's it's gonna break um, and sure enough, when they when they finally clash swords towards the conclusion of this initial outburst, uh, it, his sword breaks in half. Osawa's katana snaps in half, um, at which point Masaya Kato effortlessly runs him through. Like, he stabs him in the abdomen, um, which results in Osawa, like, spitting up blood and collapsing onto his knees. And it looks like it looks like things are grim, like he's going down for the count. And then we the timing of it is, is just hilarious, where Masaya Kato just, like, Hey, hey, hey! Like, 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 let's let's not get carried away here, bud. You're you're fine. Just just dust yourself off. Take a breather. You're you're fine. And sure enough, as it so happens, the consume the consumption of that liver resulted in uh, Osawa having like limited immortal status. So being stabbed through the gut is not fatal to him anymore. 
And this is where we get, like I said, some like outright Highlander shit where basically he is told straight to his fucking face that the only way to kill him is to cut off his head, pause, oh yeah, and to stab you through the heart. And same goes for Masaya Kato, by the way. So um, here, towards the midway point of the movie, we have the, the rules for combat spelled out to us where both guys can cause bodily harm to one another, but the only fatal blows possible are a stab through the heart or a severing of the head. Um, and, and of course, uh, we have to follow this up with more drinks. I, I, I say that because I, it's actually a very funny transition where Masaya Kato just kind of like walks away from this guy who has a whole, a, f- a fresh new hole in his stomach. And he's just like, yeah, I'm going to get some drinks. <laughs> and sure enough, we just do a hard cut uh, to them sitting opposite each other. Like they were when they initially were drinking and eating together. And, uh, now the tone has shifted again where Osawa is, He's still really fucking pissed, but his his tone is different now because he's like, I should be dead. In fact, I should be dead twice over because I was brought in here in a near fatal state and then I was resuscitated and then you stabbed me, but I'm still here and I'm kind of pissed about it. And I'm really pissed about these circumstances. So he's he turns into like a petulant little brat here. Like he's, he's shouting, uh, he's making a big spectacle, spectacle of things. Meanwhile, uh, our our woman in purple here uh, sitting in the center of the frame and uh, pouring vodka for the two of them. Uh, so we have new glass, new glasses set out. Um, and Masaya Kato introduces uh, the vodka and explains its origin, its Russian origins and, and that it's very, very strong. Um, and this is where we get to uh, a, a chunk of the movie that I maybe could have done without because we're basically just going back and forth um, reiterating things, basically just covering ground that we've already covered, and it it gets repetitive. That that's a that's a problem here when when your story is already limited and you're kind of covering the same beats. Not only that, uh, it extends to the cinematography as well. Um, the shots are less creative during this portion of the conversation than they were earlier, um, and it's troubling. It results in like a little bit of a dull like lull in the action uh, which is really unfortunate because as i said the 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 moments that play us into this beat are really really good like we have some genuinely funny beats um but unfortunately we kind of just dilly dally here um with osawa like screaming about like why basically I, I you could refer to this chapter of the story as why me um and they do share a drink together at which point um, osawa gets huffy and he, he just throws back his whole vodka glass in one gulp, at which point everybody in the room looks at him and says, no, wait, don't! Um, and, of course, he his throat is on fire, and he accuses them of poisoning him or something. It's it's pretty funny. The, the pantomime of him uh, clutching his throat and waving air down his throat is, like, waving air on his tongue, rather, is, is actually pretty funny. But then we get some stuff that kind of reeks of maybe the director getting bored of the setups and just wanting to change up the lighting and change up the change up the blocking somehow. Uh, maybe he was getting bored of his own project or something because uh, Masaya Kato displays superhuman speed by kind of like transporting himself to different parts of the room, like kind of like ha- hanging up in the rafters. Um, and this is where <laughs> this is where I, I started to think to myself, like, huh, has like. Did do Hikitomura really like Unbreakable, or is he like an X Men fan or something? Because some of uh, Masaya Kato's uh, dialogue here made me think of um, 
the the character dynamics in uh, M Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, where it's like extraordinary people exist. It's like they exist out in the open. They look like to to quote Wednesday Adams. It's like it's like they look just like everyone else. Homicidal maniacs. Look it up. Um, yeah, basically he has some stuff about like extraordinary people such as myself uh, exist all around us. It's just a matter of uncovering them, of of discovering them. Um, but he he's hanging up in the rafters and then he comes back to his starting position. It's it's goofy. And what's also goofy is that we kind of get a, a reprise of the the moment where Osawa breaks out into hysterics and starts laughing and scoffing at the idea of of his uh, host essentially being this this demon of sorts. Uh, it's like, huh, we already kind of did that. Now, I want to say it was probably better before. And also, it doesn't really make a lick of sense at this point because we've had a pretty decent demonstration of this guy's supernatural capabilities up to this point but anyway long story short eventually after you know rolling on the floor laughing and making a fool of himself um and trying his best to deny the the supernatural horseshit that's been going on all night uh osawa finally gets a close-up like we like we get this this shot where his demeanor shifts and uh, he looks gravely serious um, and basically he locks eyes with, with Masaya Kato and he says, okay, I'll do it. It's like, you, you, you want to fight? I'll give you a fight. Like you want to, you want to die tonight? You want to go to hell tonight? Let's do it. Um, which results in, uh, a knowing nod, uh, between Masaya Kato and, uh, his, his lady cohort. Um, which brings us to the next scene where a, uh, like a, a carpet is laid out with, uh, adorned with all any number of weapons like bladed instruments so we have a whole host of swords we have shuriken we have like claws we have armor uh, it's all laid out at the feet of osawa and he is instructed he can pick anything he wants and i think this scene is probably the one that elicits the most uh, laughs um, this is not like intended to be a, a wholly comedic film but like i said masaya kato is damn charming um, and he does have some good comedic timing here, uh, as evidenced by the fr this beat here where we get this flat shot of everybody sitting in the frame with all the weapons splayed out. And uh, Osawa is told he can he can grab any sword he wants, so of course he goes for the, the big, gaudy, stupid fucking katana in the center of the mat, at which point Masaya Kato says, whoa, 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 wait, all, any, anyone but that one. And he's like, but but you, you told me I, I, could, I could pick anyone I wanted. And... What what makes it work is uh instead of like continuing the conversation, Masaya Kato is he's like sitting very casually on the floor. Like like he, he looks very much at home in this temple. And instead of saying anything, he just kinda like reaches out his hand, like, gimme that. Like that's mine. And they he like gestures again, like <clears throat> But again, there's there's no utterance, like there's no words exchanged. He just gives him a look and he's like I mean, no duh, that's mine. Like, look at it. it. It's gaudy as shit. Have you seen my fucking outfit? <laughs> um, so, of course, he also has to reluctantly hand it back to him. But it's, it's just funny that it's his first choice. And, of course, it's the one he's not entitled to. And then we just get a several-minute sequence here where, where Osawa is picking up um, any manner of weapons, taking a look at them. Uh, Masaya Kato has lots of suggestions as he's as he's sorting through them all. He suggests a broadsword initially, but uh, Osawa is indignant. Instead, he picks up like a Chinese uh, longsword or straight sword uh, instead. And you can tell just by the glances exchanged that they're kind of like sparring with each other. Uh, 
don't know, psychologically right now. Um, and then there's a stretch here where ev- every single fucking thing Osawa picks up, Masaya Kato has some sort of criticism about, where he's like, why would you pick up a Man- Manriki Kusari? Like, why would you do that in such a small room? Why- what are you even going to do with those claws? Shurikens are fucking stupid. Why would you do that? <laughs> and his delivery is just very casual. Like, I don't even know what you're doing, kid, but, you know, I hope you're having fun because I'm not having f- I'm not having fun criticizing you. At one point, he just shakes his head like he, like he looks like he's gonna go to sleep. And, and in fact, he does shut his eyes and appears to like try to take a nap or something. Um, and he does point out to Osawa that there is a revolver. Like it looks like a a revolver ocelot Colt single action army, <laughs> six bullets. More than enough to kill anything that moves. <laughs> he loves reloading during a fight. Um, he points it out to him, and he has to introduce it as like, oh, hey, by the way, this is something that uh, is brand fucking new in the West, which is not Japan. Uh, and also, now that now that I see the revolver, it makes me think, hmm, maybe this definitely doesn't take place in the 1500s. This has to be the 1800s, which would you know be the very end of the samurai days. Um, anyway, uh, he has a revolver, and Masaya Kato tells him, hey, that works really well, by the way. It, it, it kills good. <laughs> um, and it, at that point, uh, as Osawa is inspecting the revolver, Masaya Kato just shuts his eyes and appears to be just dozing off. And Osawa, like, unexpectedly points it at his face. He points it at Masaya Kato's face and looks like he's going to plug him right then and there. But um, a very important line is mentioned here, and that would be that Masaya Kato opens his eyes and says, you you, re- you weren't going to shoot me when I was sleeping, were you? And he's like, you wouldn't have hit me anyway. I'm really fucking fast. Uh, but the important part of his dialogue here is that uh, apparently he doesn't sleep, nor does he dream. And in fact, he kind of asks uh, very casually, like, hey, uh, do you dream? To which Osawa replies naturally, like, yeah, of course. And he's like, oh. <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of interesting, like, how casually he dismisses that, where it's like, clearly this is something that uh, Masaya Kato's character is probably pining for, um, but these are two men who are about to rip into each other with with bladed instruments, so they don't need to be polite right now. Um, anyway, uh, Osawa chooses his weapon, which of course is another gaudy katana that uh, I wouldn't be surprised actually if this was repurposed, like a prop that was reused from Versus. Uh, I'd have to take another look at that movie, but that movie had some gaudy fucking swords as well. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these props were carried over from that production. Um, but Osawa selects like a... It's kind of weird because the prop looks futuristic almost. Like it, it looks like one of those cyborg arm like toys that I had when I was a little kid, like a claw arm thing. But it's, it's just like a, a forearm bracer and a gauntlet. Um, but something about the construction of it looks like somewhat futuristic it's not meant to be but he has that on one arm and then uh, a big gaudy fucking sword um and then uh we get ready for battle at which point we uh we do a toast uh our lady cohort goes to sit against the wall so as to not get you know caught up within the action um and then unexpectedly as they're tossing back their vodka uh osawa uh he sits up and he spits he spits it out. He spits all the all the booze directly in Masaya Kato's face, uh, to which uh, he responds by opening a fan, like uh, to to guard himself from the booze, 
Um, but Osawa gets the drop on him and uh, draws his big stupid fucking sword and actually hacks off uh, one of Masaya Kato's arms like at the midpoint, um, which results in kind of a really cool beat where Masaya Kato like kind of flies up into the rafters. It, it makes me think of like, I don't know, uh, like Japanese like like horror or or fantasy movies from like the 60s through the 80s uh, where you know, they got the wire work is very gaudy the lighting is uh, audacious and all over the top and stuff it, it it very much feels like something like you'd see in like a witch movie or something uh, and again the the theatricality of the of the locale and the the lighting setups uh, feels very much at home do like having having the characters do actions like really over the top actions like this but yeah he like flies up into the rafters and uh, condemns Osawa for being a scoundrel, uh, but then he very uh, smoothly and deftly just resecures his arm. He just puts it back, like like nothing happened. Um, but he also expresses that he's he's proud of him. He's like, you've grown up just in the past few minutes here. Like you went from being just a little piss ant who couldn't harm a fly to now you're now you're really trying to kill me. <laughs> it's like quit trying, quit trying to quit trying to hit me and hit me. Uh, to quote uh, Lawrence Fishburne from uh, The Matrix. Um, actually, the set kind of reminds me of that in some ways, or at least the way it's used anyway, and a little bit of the camera work as well. But anyway, um, they go at it, um, and this is like an actual fight this time. Uh, it's mostly one-sided. Like Osawa is keeping he's keeping up with Masaya Kato, but for the most part. He's a half beat behind, um, and Masaya Kato is kind of deftly dodging all of his attacks and whatnot. Um, but here's where the, the choreography steps up in complexity, and uh, we start to see more usage of stunt doubles for some of the more acrobatic movements. Like, there's some, like, tricking maneuvers and, and lots of, like, aerial stuff that you can tell, like, they, they subbed in stunt people uh, for the actors. It, it's not anything to condemn the film for, it's just an observation, but... We get slightly longer takes um, than you would expect for for a movie like this, but in some ways, um, given the time constraints and the budget, uh, shooting the film, like shooting for the edit in that fashion, uh, was probably necessary. Um, and f and that's an example of you know res restrictions and constraints uh, resulting in a potentially better product. It's like we can't rely on uh, changing the lighting setups every every shot like we we just don't have time for that we can't rely on doing ultra intricate choreography that relies on the edit in order to look right we need to do some longer takes just so we can have the footage by the time we have to get back to the editing room but um there are some like borderline silly moments like there's a beat where osawa like kicks up a floorboard and and launches it at masaya kato who like throws it back at him and then slices it in half and we get all these goofy camera movements and whatnot it's very over the top um but it results of course in uh osawa once again losing the battle um in virtually the same manner although it's it's understood that uh, he has run through again uh but this time it's through the heart which as we were told earlier uh, is one of the two ways in which these two men can be killed. Um, which, of course, is the part where the this, you know, the story can't end here. That would be kind of a really lame ending. So we, we have one more chunk of the movie left, and that would be where Masaya Kato sits down after having killed uh, Osawa, 
and he's he's dejected he's disappointed and it shows on his face and he he expresses he expresses it as such to to uh, the lady in the room um and then uh, this is another thing that seems to pop up in some of not all of uh, Ryuhei Kitamuro's movies but uh most obviously uh verses but also a little bit of alive as well where it seems to be like it's a thing in his movies where like a, a protagonist has to either die or get close to death uh, in order to realize their full potential. Because like versus uh, Takasakaguchi's character gets like shot in the fucking eye and rolls down a hill, uh, black sheep style, um, and then magically comes back from the dead stronger than ever. Um, alive, I, I could not really tell you half of what goes on in that movie, but it seems to seems to register in my memory as basically that. Hideo Sakaki has like some sort of alien thing in him that enjoys battle and when he uh, gives into it fully it makes him super duper super saiyan strong uh, which allows him to again beat Takasakaguchi who uh, because it's a Ryuhei Kitamura movie uh, he has to throw hands with um, and then this one sure enough uh, we get this moment where every, like Osawa seems dead um, and then we get this really shitty uh, CGI wormhole effect of the cosmos flying towards earth and then some some presence descends onto the temple from on high and then uh we by the way we arrive at that shot by by zooming into osawa's uh dead pupil and then we uh go into the woman's pupil or come out of her pupil rather and then uh she gives a shocked look and osawa is now on his feet and masaya kato turns around and is like oh shit you're not dead uh, I was not expecting that. I was not aware of that. Um, at which point we have a final exchange between the two of them. Uh, neither man, neither man is looking at each other. By the way, made made me think of like the films of uh, Mamoru Oshii, uh, who has a tendency to have people talk in cars without looking at each other. It's just a thing that comes up in his movies. But we have two men showing their backs to each other and having a philosophical conversation. Uh, it's well shot. It's well constructed. Um, some really some really crisp eye light on both men but basically what's exchanged here between the two men is that um, Osawa has his demeanor has shifted once again and now he kind of has like a ethereal like holier than thou kind of uh, I don't know enlightened vibe to him and he basically tells uh, Masaya Kato Aragami uh, he tells him that like you may be like the strongest uh, in the land. Oh yeah, by the way, there was a moment earlier in the film where Masaya Kato explained that uh, he was, uh, his his like earthly name, I guess, was uh, Miyamoto Musashi. Uh, and that was what caused uh, Osawa to go into hysterics, like laughing at him. It's like, you, you mean, not only are you some crazy hermit that lives up in the mountains who's killed 800 people, you're also apparently Miyamoto Musashi sure whatever but um anyway he says uh, you're the strongest in the land yes but there are other lands that exist throughout the cosmos so I, it's not explicitly stated but i guess we're to believe that um i mean he does refer to himself as like living up to his potential or realizing his potential via being stabbed through the fucking heart oh yeah and eating eating a dead man's liver which gave him immortal powers and then he was stabbed through the heart and then he either realized his potential or based on the visual representation of what happened it's almost like uh an, an alien presence uh 
possessed him? Not really sure what happened. Anyway, he's saying like you're the strongest on Earth, but there there are things there are things beyond Earth. So I th- I think he's implying that he's now an alien, or he always was an alien. He just now remembered that he's an alien. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Point is, we have some more sword fighting to be done, and it's actually kind of cool. Um. Anyway, uh, the two of them square off. Oh yeah, by the way, the set has changed. Um, not not just the lighting setups, which do change very frequently and, and to great effect, but um, the Buddha statue uh, now has like the look of like a, I don't know, an angry deity of sorts, like a, a war god of some sort. Um, and also the primary color motif was purple. Like the, there were purple highlights adorning the walls uh, in earlier chapters of the film. But um, after Osawa's resurrection, uh, his second resurrection, I guess, um, there's now red highlights, like red neon lighting, uh, kind of adorning the statue and some of the nearby window fixtures. Um, but what follows is, I think the, I, I think the most impressive bit of fighting in the movie. And it is funny to think that like the fighting in this movie isn't super impressive or anything. It's more, it's more just a, I don't know, it's, I don't know how to describe the the appeal of this movie. I'm not sure they even has a whole lot of it. But in terms of concept, uh, I really do like single location films. Um, and it's not often that you have single location films that double as action slash fighting films. So for me in particular, this movie holds appeal that maybe it wouldn't to, to most mainstream moviegoers. But uh, what we have here is uh, kind of the, the final bit of fighting here. And it is most certainly the the best choreographed bits. Um, I haven't been talking about music in this film, but I do think it's very interesting to note that uh, it's uh, composed by Nobuhiko Morino, uh, who has worked with uh, Kitamura a few times. Uh, he did work with him on Versus, so his first feature, as well as this film, Alive, Sky High, Godzilla Final Wars, Love, Death. Um, the two of them have been frequent collabor- collaborators, but what's funny about that is that um, the early 2000s, especially in like, I don't know, quote, hip or extreme Japanese cinema from the early 2000s, I want to say it was like a, it was like trip hop or like house music was like a requirement or something. So the score for this movie is is largely like very, very, very modern, like trip hop music uh, for the majority of its runtime. Um, and it's not all bad. It's just, it gives it a, it, it puts it in a certain time. Uh, in my mind anyway. Um, but I think it's, I, I mean, I don't mean this to be mean or anything, but I think part of what makes this this last chunk of the fighting in the film more effective than the earlier instances is that um, they kind of wisely put it together without any music. Like they retract the music, they subtract the music rather, um, and in its, in its stead we have uh, some really, really on point sound design. Like the the sword clangs are a little uh, over the top, like they they sound like somebody like they sound like people like Terminators swinging I beams at each other is what I'm getting at. Like the metal sounds are a little heavier than they ought to be, um, but there's some stuff they do with the sound editing here, like um, making sure to include like the breathing noises, um, and more importantly the the footfalls because we're we're working on like a lacquered wooden surface here. So there's a particular sound that comes with like barefoot hitting like a temple floor or like a dojo floor. Um, and a combination of like the breaks in the action, like the very, very, very traditional like samurai or chambara 
beats in the action like that's that's like one of the hallmarks of like samurai action cinema in my mind is like in more recent years like with the Ruroni Kenshin movies choreographed by Kenji Tanigaki um you're seeing a lot more movement a lot more intricate choreography than is traditional for the genre it works exceedingly well in those films mind you like that is no criticism I don't mean it to be but like for traditional like samurai combat in film like dating back to like the the 50s or even earlier than that i guess but um a lot of times it's characterized by like there's a sound i'm gonna make that that sums it up it's just (laughs) basically what i'm getting at is the 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 beats between the action are what i think of when i think of like traditional like samurai sword combat is a lot of it's a lot of anticipation um, I think that's that's part of why you saw a lot of uh, comparisons drawn between like westerns and samurai films from like the spaghetti western era and whatnot is is because of the the quick draw is a thing that exists in in Japanese sword combat. It's it's called batojutsu. It's the the art of drawing the sword. Like like there's there's numerous instances in in samurai films that may as well be like a high noon situation just with a blade instead of a revolver, but they do a very good job of managing those beats here during this final chunk of the combat where it's not it's not all movement it's not all chaos they take the time to just like let it breathe like tell a little bit of a story like show on the eyes of each person what the intent is for the next move and and who's who's leading and who's who's lagging behind um anyway the last actual chunk of the fight though happens in total darkness because we get the world's longest fucking rotating shot here where our two here our two characters are posed posed like back to back with each other and the camera rotates around them ceaselessly as they talk to one another at which point they both spin around away from each other and uh cut cut down a couple of candles positioned at either corner of the room uh, which results in a a final stanza uh, wherein it's basically total darkness um, but we get like strobe lighting uh that's supposed to be lit by a combination of thunder and uh like sparks from like swords clashing together it's very impressionistic i'm not sure i like it a hundred percent but the opening bit of it's pretty cool or we get to see just like um swords swinging in the darkness and and causing sparks to come off of each other uh, i'm not sure i agree with the usage of like jet engine sounds <laughs> uh, to imply speed um but it is what it is anyway long story short uh also like manages to land a killing blow on Aragami, uh in the middle of the like in the midst of the darkness and uh the the final uh image of the two of them standing together is illuminated by uh clouds moving away uh from a full moon which illuminates the interior of the temple it's a pretty cool idea it works pretty well um and basically as the lights come up we discover that osawa has uh deflected uh using that forearm guard uh Aragami's stroke and uh, stabbed Aragami through the heart uh, with his own sword. And the two of them, in extreme close-up, exchange a few words. Uh, kind of made me think of Roy Batty at the end of uh, Blade Runner. Where he doesn't say time to die or anything. He doesn't make mention of tears or anything like that. But um, basically, we, we call back to uh, the, the dreaming. Uh, Masaya Kato like, says, oh, you, you got me. Well... Do you think I'll do you think I'll sleep? And he's like, yeah, I think you'll sleep. And he's like, 
more importantly, do you think I'll dream now that I'm going to die? And he's like, sure, bud. Yeah, you'll, you'll dream. Um, and he goes quietly into the night. Uh, so uh, we have a new champion. Um, and it like 100%, that's exactly what happens, basically. <laughs> like, he takes the mantle. Um, so we, we transition, I guess, to the morning. And uh, we have Masaya Kato's body laid out on the floor, at which point uh, Osawa is looking down at him uh, uh, while sitting next to uh, next to the woman in purple. And uh, she says, like, uh, yeah, uh, you're going to stick around. I'm going to stick around. And uh, you're going to kill a whole bunch of people. You're going to fight. And I'm going to bear witness to all the fighting. And he seems pretty okay with that. So basically, uh, he's taking up the title. Uh, he's just going to live in this temple for all time until somebody comes to take the title, comes to take his head or stab him through the heart. Um, and his expression implies he is perfectly content with that arrangement. Um, his his uh, demeanor here seems more like he was at the beginning of the film than, than we saw him towards the end of it. So that whole business with him being possessed by some alien presence or something, I don't know if they remembered or if they forgot about that point is he's okay with what's going on anyway uh our final bit in the film uh is is kind of a it's kind of a fun beat for me in particular because uh we get yet another uh Ryuhei Kitamura uh regular uh giving a cameo here in the form of a baby-faced Takasakaguchi uh who I have talked about numerous times even on this podcast but um numerous times over the years uh he was of course the hero protagonist from uh Versus, um, he's worked with Kitamura numerous times, largely in like a stunt player capacity, not so much as like a, a leading man. Uh, but the two of them, their careers kind of start out together, and uh, it, Sakaguchi has kind of become like a, I don't know, he, he's a very he's a special gift uh, to the action community in Japan. Like, like he threatened retirement numerous times, but um, I'm really glad he 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 didn't go he didn't like go quietly. Uh, into retirement he had at least two or three projects in the past few years that I was very very happy to see come together because uh, he's a very talented performer Uh, he seems to be like at the tip of the spear in terms of innovation these days um, and in like action choreography Um, he he is he's very very talented is what I'm getting at and plus he has a really wonderful YouTube channel if you're interested in uh food blogs and uh action choreography tutorials <laughs> uh very interesting stuff i think it's called a uh, tuck channel um and he has a little uh, ninja puppet guy that hangs out with him it's it's good fun if you're into that sort of thing anyway uh we get an explicit uh 100 uh, explicit matrix reference here where takasakaguchi we get a extreme close-up of takasakaguchi locking eyes uh with osawa uh who is now made up in like he has big fucking Billy Idol hair and a, and a big gaudy kimono just like Masaya Kato had. And they're staring at each other from across the temple floor. Um, lady in Purple is now the Lady in Pink. Uh, the decor in the room has changed from purple to 100% red now. Uh, so the, the new master is most certainly in charge. Um, but then we get this, this laughable moment where uh, without changing the shot, this extreme close-up of Takasakaguchi, um, he his hands come up into the frame brandishing sunglasses, which he then places on his face, um, and then he opens his trench coat, his duster, his black trench coat, to reveal 
a shit ton of airsoft guns. I mean, uh, firearms. Uh, it's totally airsoft guns. We didn't have money for real guns. Plus, it's Japan. Guns are hard to get. Um, and uh, his weapon of choice is not a sword. It's a fucking grenade launcher, <laughs> in which he slams down on the floor as if to say, game on, bruh. Uh, to which uh, Osawa responds by giving a heavy metal face. He goes, wow! <laughs> and then uh, we get a, the title blast on the screen again, along with some fucking punk rock music to, to signify that uh, apparently uh, the current god of war that inhabits this temple, uh, Osawa, uh, has manned this post uh, for a few hundred years because now people are showing up brandishing firearms and explosives and he is all about it like he is excited um, and yeah that's origami all 78 minutes of it uh, as i said the movie probably could have been about like 20 minutes shorter or something um, but i think it actually has some stuff to offer like i have fun with it coming back to it uh, in particular i think i had a lot of fun with it because um, because i know the director I think that's probably the best way to watch the movie. Like, probably not like, probably not a good place to start if you're at all interested in Kitamura and his offerings. But if you're familiar with the man's uh, oeuvre, um, there's a lot of fun little things, fun little references, fun little tendencies to notice. Um, so this was a fun rewatch for me, uh, and I am kind of interested to go back and check out Two uh, LDK. Uh, because uh, as far as I understand, that's the better regarded film uh, from the dual project. Um, but as I said, uh, as of yet, I have not seen it. Um, but it is apparently getting a Blu-ray release uh, next month, uh, which I I don't know why that is. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit shocked. I'm kind of excited, though. Like, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. That's, that's kind of exciting for me. Um, in fact, I'm going to take just a second here to look up who is putting that disc out. It's from Unearthed Films, uh, who have a uh, extensive back catalog of uh, what appears to be, you know, trash. <laughs> um, not not all trash. Like, it uh, looks like largely, quote, extreme cinema. So things that would probably bear the, like, uh, Media Blasters Tokyo Shock uh, label. Holy fucking shit. Oh, no. Uh, so, folks out there, uh, anybody out there who's listening to this podcast, you won't—you probably won't know what I'm talking about, but um, it's very worth noting that apparently Unearthed Films uh, put out the DVD of a film, a little film called Bone Sickness from the year 2004, uh, a, a film that I proudly display on my DVD shelf. Now, uh, this film was described by me uh, to me, uh, by one of my very close friends as, quote, the worst film he has ever seen, which is why, of course, I ran out and bought the DVD. So, uh, Unearthed Films, doing the Lord's work and putting <laughs> putting out films like fucking Bone Sickness. Oh, yeah, and 2LDK. Uh, so, yeah, uh, maybe I'll pick that up next month. Anyway, uh, I think that's about all I have to say about this one. I probably ranted and rambled and said very little over the course of this whole podcast, so I'm going to get out of here right quick. Uh, but in the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias, on the Instagram, at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every pod form you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it.
that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.